out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Welcome, once again. This is The C86 Show, and this is David Eastall, bringing you the finest in indie pop from the golden decade that was the 80s and sometimes beyond. As you know, I like a special guest. This week's special special one is going to be Pete, or Peter, Astor, the British songwriter and solo artist who was once a member of The Loft and The Weather Prophets and also The Wisdom of Harry and Ellis Island Sound. It's all true. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, Pete had also just got a reissue that was coming out. And this is what we were talking about. So I'm handing it over to myself in conversation with Pete Astor. Take it yeah, away. Well, this, this, uh, this is one of the, the reasons. Because um, you have got a reissue that is coming out as, as, your, as Pete. Aster, titled Paradise. So when you, because this came out decades ago, didn't it? I do believe. Decades ago, yeah, no, it came out decades ago, yeah. So it came out 1992. Yes. (laughs) I thought it came out in 1991, but it actually came out in 1992. So I think it's wrong in a few places. I hope it's not wrong in the press release. (laughs) 1991 obviously didn't really matter, but I'm pretty sure it was 1992. But yeah. Yeah. So what's it? I mean, one of the things that I've noticed just, you know, like talking to people is, is, Sometimes just going back and archiving stuff. So was so how did this kind of project come about? Sort of you know, like going back and you know getting this record back onto the um, airwaves and onto the streets and into the streaming land. Um, how did it come about? I don't remember the actual. I mean, basically, there's a sort of a you know a certain amount of people who really really enjoyed my solo stuff at the beginning of the nineties. And it kind of came from their enthusiasm, really. And we sort of, me and Gunter went to Peter, spoke about it. And we were thinking it was, it was, you know, releasing some of the stuff. So it was like, so this was the one that, that I guess I was the most fond of. Um, and there's a bunch of things that I'm fond of. There's an album Submarine as well, which people are really fond of, I know. Um, so it's kind of between that and this one, we decided to do this because it kind of, it, it was just, you know, it's an album that I'm really, um, I mean, we're, we're playing some shows, I and mean, the original band is playing some shows. Um, not many, but so we're playing some. Yes. And, so, and it all works, and it's, it's, it sounds quite nice. I'm, I'm completely, I don't listen to it, I think, oh, Christ, what was going on there? And I think this collection of songs is kind of, um, is, is good. I think I was kind of, because I was doing so much, I was, it's like a, a mini version of the, you know, that um, it's become such a cliche now about the 10,000 hours stick you know the you know the malcolm gladwell yes the malcolm gladwell the famous the beatles the beatles and the um sergeant pepper album that he had calculated they must have done some ridiculous amount of hours after playing hamburg and all their albums um yeah recording all their albums exactly yeah so it's that it's the same thing it's that kind of i mean so it's a similar thing well on some level i I, i'm I'm like quite pleased with some of the songs on it or collection of songs because i think i've been i've been really working full-time doing music for what 
six or seven years until that point and that was so I think it kind of that made that I was like I was I was sort of uh, I was match fit as they say you were match fit yes you were up there you you hadn't got any metatarsal metatarsal injuries anyway but but you but you said it six years but you the loft formed in the very early 80s you know 82 83 didn't it and, and yeah, was, yeah. was signed we to creation we just talk about full time you know that from about 86 onwards right uh, all I, I just lived, I just did music. That's what I did, you know, well, wandered around and thought of stuff, and, you know, but that was my job, if you like, you know. Yes, that was, well, that's yeah. right. Because yeah. I've I've put, you know, in, <laughs> you have to, you know, make these things up a bit, but I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which were the years of the Smiths, which is obviously not 100% a watertight theory, but, you know, it's a good starting point. And The Loft came around in 83, your first band. So that... I mean, obviously, there was a lot of bands that suddenly appeared in 84, 85 who were very much at that part of that indie C86 world. So when you were sort of beginning to play music in that sort of early 80s, I guess you were making music by then and not just started. Did you what were your kind of musical influences that started to shape that kind of that career from the sort of 80s on, you know, throughout to the next two decades? Yeah, I think the, the kind of key thing, because I, I mean, I've realised it's interesting. I mean, it's just, the answer's true, but it's also been asked a lot. So I'm, I've actually got quite a clear, straightforward answer because I've been asked the question quite a lot. So I kind of, I've, I've found myself thinking about it. The bottom line was in, what, about eight, I don't know, say 1979, 1980, 1981, I was in a, a band called Damp Jungle who were, um, we were very sort of, we were like, I mean, doesn't really fit time-wise, but we were like a kind of a cross between the pop group and beat happening. That's why we were kind of, um, we were very post-punk. Right. So kind um, of a bit sort of um, jarring, you know, a bit sort of awkward. Yes, and very sort of, exp- we, it finally was released um, about a few years ago on, on a label in uh, a Hackney label called Negative Space on cassette only, which is very fitting because we were going to do... Um, we were we were we were going to do one track on we were going to do it they were going to, there was going to be a, a release on um, fuck off tapes who you possibly haven't heard of no not not a famous not famous well, at all fuck off tapes weirdly I, and this is a sort of a side issue but I always rather enjoyed the fact that um, Simon Reynolds from the Melody Maker really couldn't stand the weather prophets <laughs> he really didn't like the weather prophets you'd, you'd be reading the newspaper and. Uh, You'd be reading a review of something completely random, and then there'd be a sort of a, he'd just be like, "Oh, not like that shit." The weather prophet, you'd be like, "Blog, oh, okay," um, which is fair enough. But what I did quite enjoy that in his "Rip It Up and Start Again," which is a phenomenal book, um, he, there's a whole big section on fuck off tapes, which I really like. <laughs> Why, yeah, it's called fuck it. So it was a cassette only label, fuck off tapes, run by Kiff Kiff and um, Grant Showbiz. You, you would, might be familiar with Grant Showbiz, yes, this fanatic. Um, but yes, yeah, so. They, we recorded it at their studio, uh, which is called Street Level, which because of the fall recorded there. So we recorded that stuff there, and it finally got released in 2016. So the cassette is sold out now, which is I rather like. So that's gone. But I love the fact we were actually on the fuck off tapes. Sorry, back to the point. The yes. point. The point is, we were very sort of Maoist in our kind of belief in experimentation. I remember we played at our college, which was um, Middlesex Polytechnic, like the art college. And it was, this wasn't at the art college. This was at another campus, which I guess was the drama campus. And we played a gig, I remember, and it was me 
um, Adam and then and, and Liz, our friend Liz, playing sort of basic drum kit, and then our friend um, Phil on the decks, playing decks. This was 1979. So we were like, you know, so we were kind of trying to break the I mean, and and the, I mean, when I think about it, that was quite prescient, really, play, having, having somebody on stage playing sort of like, he was playing sort of dub kind of sort of rhythms and stuff like that. God, that's amazing. Jammed with like um, an echo something or other over it. Um, you know, it, 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 it really was like, you know, a turd in the punch bowl at a wedding. It really was just like, it, it really, it was the, the you know, it, we, we didn't have the heart to carry it. it, it I think it, it just about killed us, done it. But, um, but it was, yeah, people didn't like it, to put it mildly. It was, it was beyond dislike. It was just utter indifference, you know. Um, uh, so what happened is being a massive Richard Hell fan and all that kind of stuff, um, I remember buying the record Time. There was a single on, on Shape Records in about 1980, I think. Um, there's a track on it called Time, which he wrote. It ended up on his second album. I don't know the second album wasn't out then. This was just a single. And I bought it, and it was like a real moment in about 1980, 1981, where I was like, oh, you can actually make music that's kind of, on some level, has a radical soul, but isn't um, just... Uh, sort of gnarly, awkward, how much longer will we tolerate mass murder? You know, that that kind of thing. Yes. It wasn't I'm, it wasn't Track Mask Replica. <laughs> no, even though I adored Track Mask Replica and did to this do to this day. It was another example of it. I will um, I will share this with you because it's it's quite relevant. I hope you don't mind I'm not going on too much. No, it's fine. We used to rehearse in a place called Crayford Road in the squat that our erstwhile drummer lived in uh, dave morgan wasn't in the loft at this time in fact we were called the we're living room at this time uh and we used to rehearse in this squat but it's me bill and andy and this, and this guy called andy knott and he lived in this squat in in tufnell park when there were still squats in tufnell park um and we used to rehearse and downstairs was a band called i can't remember what they were called but they were they all became architects and they used to wear black dyed black boiler suits and dms you know and cropped hair and you know pop quiz their best their favorite band was guess what test department you know you 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 get the picture yeah yes and the other band that played there was a band called the iuds Are you familiar with an iud no no radical dance faction no iud is the female um it's it's a, it's a rather dodgy um method of contraception right IUD, it's the thing that was the coil basically oh. The word for the coil. So there was this, this sort of feminist um, band who were the, the, the test department band were right snotty fuckers, and it's not quite fair, but they were not. They were annoying. They were kind of they were very patronising. The IUDs we got on super well with, and they were they were really very nice people. Even though you might have thought they would have they would have just on principle hate. It was a comedy, and anyway, blah. Interesting band. But I remember talking to the woman in the IUDs whose name I don't remember. We were having tea in the kitchen as you do. And she was like, it's really weird. All your songs are love songs. And I was like, are they? And, and I thought, God, like, they are, aren't they? But it was a very 1982 kind of conversation because she was like, she wasn't sort of at me about it, but she noticed they were all love songs. And obviously in 1982, they should have been songs about the miners' strike or songs about Cambodia or something, all, all of which I was cognizant of and completely in, in favour of. But... Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So, 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 so the loft as we developed, and you know, my my the type of thing I wanted to do 
emerged as a result of me finding a way out of that kind of Maoist post-punk sort of miserabilism that I found a bit constricting and a bit, yeah, just a bit. And then with, with all the ramifications of what being Maoist is, i.e. reductionist, killjoy, ugly, uniform, blah, 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 you know. Yes, often, often living in a squat and, I don't know, I can't remember the band at the moment, but... Um... They all used to put their clothes in a box and then in the morning just go there and pick out the clothes so that they all had to... to yeah, shoot. <laughs> so it did say, and, it is, and you think, oh, yeah, that was of its time, wasn't it? It was just, um, yes, I don't know. It, was, it just sounded all rather, you know, it was going to end in tears because probably everyone had to sleep with each other and it was all kind of very intense. So it was like, hmm, I wonder how that finished. But when you were just, just roughly, I mean, because you're, yes of that age that you probably were watching Top of the Pops thinking, oh, the sweet Gary Glitter, not so good though. Um, you know, were you into that kind of, were you sort of aware of that musical world at the late 60s and early 70s and went, oh, had your Mark Bolan moments or David Bowie and thought, I must play the guitar? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, I sort of, um, yeah. Sorry, I was just thinking that the, the squat that you're talking about with the, with the changing clothes, they probably didn't even get to sleep with each other. That's the, just the thing I remember thinking about that. Is they just got to swap the clothes. They didn't even get the good 60s bit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, it's ludicrous, but I mean, I saw Bowie doing Starman on Lift Off with Aisha in the afternoon and then Top of the Pops in the evening. I can't remember the day, but bloody books written about it but it was it was on the program called lift off with aisha in the afternoon after school and then the evening one um yeah and it was like wow but i was i was a slade fan <laughs> i loved slade i loved t-rex as well but i mean i was very much um heteronormative you know i like i like i liked i liked to know i knew where i was with slade you know which i think was probably my teenage my teenage brain Quite, I, I, I like I, I, Slade was possibly less threatening to me than Bowie was as, as a twelve-year-old or a thirteen-year-old. Yes, well, um, I, absolutely, yeah. And I just and was that when you started playing music? Did you sort of have? Were you one of those kids at school who started sort of strumming and learning how to do C, D, and E or whatever it is? No, not at all. No, no, no. I mean, I kind of now my my interest at that time. I mean, I'm sort of saying I didn't I didn't have Slade comforting for me i mean you know whatever by by about 1974 i was reading jean Genet and william burroughs and all that sort of stuff so i wanted things to be as far out as they possibly could be um but my sort of teeny bop fandom was was slayed no i didn't play the guitar at all i mean i was i remember i, I picked up a guitar was it? Was about 16 and i remember playing them to my quote unquote girlfriend at the time and i was singing these songs and she was like, yeah, but you can't sing. And I'm like, what do you mean I can't sing? And basically, because I had not a musical bone in my body, um, I was just doing what Mark Smith did, basically, which is just kind of like talk, shout the words. Yes, <laughs> God. And it was like, and, I, and, and, you know, and I remember playing in a sort of a band with my friend and I'll go, oh, I'll play lead on this. So I just played the guitar near the top of the neck. And he went, yeah, but you've got to play the right notes. And I'm like, what do you mean the right notes? I'm playing lead. I'm playing at the top of the neck. 
I was utterly unmusical. I mean, which is good. I mean, I was free jazz. You know, I invented free jazz, but I didn't really want to do free jazz. I wanted to do um, whatever, you know. Yes, three-minute crafted songs. Because the one thing that I did have noticed as well during that sort of time as we crept into the 80s was that there was the great ability to be able to be sort of unemployed, sign on, you know, there was a job, job seekers allowance, there was the enterprise allowance scheme. So it gave a lot of people a year or two of, of almost like a grant to do something, to be not unemployed, but to say, oh, I'm a musician or I'm an artist for that period of time. Did, did that at all come into your orbit or, you know, sphere of life? Because because a lot of people I've spoke to have said, oh, yeah, that was fantastic. That gave us a couple of years being able to just get the rent paid and be musicians full time, which often meant just being a bit wasted during the day, but sort of having a gig occasionally here, there and everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's interesting. I, I thought of that actually it came, in, came into my head when I said, you know, I was a full-time musician from 86 onwards, but actually I was a full-time musician from 82 onwards when I left college or 83 because, yeah, I was, well, I was living in a squat, a housing co-op place for the, which the rent was like £4 a week, you know, not to cover something or other with a council. And so life was in and signing on, yeah. Yes. And yeah. then, so when, and so when you decided to be the loft, did that take a while to get together or did that sort of because there was four of you isn't there or was um, yeah, yeah. and I just wondered if that was something that you know you quickly sort of formed, got a sound that you went ah oh, this is this is actually better than just the normal pub rock band because as you probably know from years of being in decades and being in music you know there isn't that many times when somebody creates a sound that is actually this is this is something special you know and I just wondered you know and that's that often happened with you know with a lot of these bands that I've interviewed there's the five-year narrative that's another thing I've I don't think I've created it but you know I'd like to think so you know where people have got together they they played music for sort of 12 to 18 months John Peel you know if they if there was something slightly quirky John Peel picked it up then there's the John Peel session you know there there was the album you know there was also the network of like little indie clubs and art centers and places where people could play to an audience who weren't their normal friends and family, but somebody outside that, you know, from around the country, because because a John Peel play, you know, would get picked up elsewhere, and there was all these kind of little clubs from, you know, Norwich to Glasgow to Leeds to Bristol to Brighton, you know. So did you, you know, I just wondered what the kind of the story of the loft was really. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, so well, then, then I'm just trying to work out in terms of college. I think actually because I got chucked out of college and had to do a year again after taking a year out. I think my last year of college was maybe 83 or 82 or 83. But we were all in our last year of college, even though, I mean, I was I was like two years behind. Um, Which always seems like a huge thing when you're that age. And now looking, as you get older, you think, God, two years is nothing. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, well, I think at the time, I mean, I was, I was, I had no interest whatsoever. All I wanted to do was get the grant, you know, so I was not. I mean, I oh, got, God, yes, the grant. <laughs> no interest. I mean, I, I, mean I, I thoroughly enjoyed the course, actually, in the end, but it was by accident. My plan was just really to use the grant to fund my life as a musician. That was the only thing I ever had in, that was only what my plan was. Um, it was our last year of college, and I remember we, I mean, it's funny, the story, when we started, what happened is I was playing in a band, uh, and we played the Pied Bull in Islington, supporting my friend's band, who later became the bass player in the Weather Prophets. The, they were called the Fuck Pigs. Um, previously, the Anal Dwarves. <laughs> uh, but they were the Fuck Pigs. And we supported them. And, and um, Bill and Andy were at the gig. 
and they said, we really like you. Do you want to be our singer? And, uh, and I thought, and then they gave me a tape of what they did. And I listened to it and I thought the tape was a little bit twee. I didn't, I wasn't that into it. But they didn't have a phone. Uh, I had a phone in my <laughs> squad, but they did not have a phone in their squad. Um, and, and, and the place in Tufnell Park where they used to rehearse also didn't have a phone. So I went along in that very old fashioned way. I mean, I lived in uh, Crouch End, so it wasn't far from Tufnell Park. And they, and I said, well, they said, they said, well, look, come, we, we'd arranged the gig. Well, come along to, to the rehearsal. We rehearse on Sundays. So, so I said, okay. And, and then I wasn't able, and then I thought, I don't want to do this. It's my last year of college. And I'd actually got really involved with college in the very last year and started to really enjoy it. This is really important to me. That I don't fuck up my last year of college. Uh, I'm going, I don't want to do it. And I'm not 100% convinced about the band. Um, so as it stood, um, so I then so I went along to the rehearsal to say I don't want to do it and didn't bring my guitar um, and they said well look you're here why don't you just borrow a guitar and go through some songs and so we did and then we made a plan which was we're all finishing our last year of college which they were too let's just rehearse on a Sunday every day on a Sunday break from our college work which was a very grown up thing to do but it was true so it meant we could still concentrate on college but every Sunday we'd meet in Tuffle Park and rehearse so we basically rehearsed for a year doing that stuff but what we did for that year was initially I started off trying to sing on their songs and then make they weren't great on words so I'd make up a top line for their songs um, and then over the period of 12 months by the end of the 12 months we were playing a set of which there were 12 songs and I'd written 11 of them because I would bring things along and go, hey, yes. you know this. So, so I sort of became the songwriter by accident, really. I mean, I didn't really realise that once you gave a song, well, once I brought a song, which was me playing, as you say, C, G and F, um, and some other ones sometimes, and singing it, and then they joined in, that that, in essence, was my song. I was not really aware of that. I mean, obviously, it is and it isn't. That's, that's a very complicated area of debate but on some, you know, I brought the song in essence you know the kind of the whatever the, the folk song version you know I brought that was I, so I ended up being the songwriter and then after we finished after that finished and this so this might have been a bit later I don't remember but I remember us going we're going to give it six months and if after six months we don't nothing happens we're giving up um, and then I think we went to the living room club or something and and we already had we gave Alan a tape Yes. Which he didn't like. <laughs> it was amazing, but he didn't like it. But he, because we always went and he liked us, he said, why don't you play first on the bill? So we played first on the bill. Because this is in the days, you've got to remember, where there weren't really very many people going. You know, it was not, he stood at the door collecting whatever the entrance fee was. Somebody would be able to tell you what the entrance fee was. I've got no idea what it was. But you know, it'd be on the door. So you could, it, was, it wasn't a big problem to talk to him. And I remember he offered us a, a play, a, a, one of our songs to be on the Alive the Living Room compilation. And my, my, my abiding memory of that is he took me downstairs in the Adam's arms and, and, and spoke to me. And uh, he spoke to me and uh, I remember saying to Bill and Andy, I think we've been offered something on one of his records, but I didn't really understand what he said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't really his accent. I, could, I knew plenty of Scottish people, so I've just got them telling me what's up. I, 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 um, it wasn't that. It was he. He took, he's tended to speak very, very fast. <laughs> so I didn't quite understand what he said. 
Can I just can I quickly reply to this? Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> Hold on two seconds. Let me just open up this, and then I can put it to bed. <laughs> This is everything's on the computer, isn't it? Yes. The faster you try and type, the worse it gets. <laughs> it's because I um, um Well... There we are, done. Yes, that was a two-finger job, wasn't it? Yes. Well, I, no, I, I, I'm, I'm a proper typist. Oh, okay, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, I, it was fucking hard to learn. I've learned it. There's no use now on phones, but I'm just trying to turn off the... Um, turn off the uh, yes. Notifications. But yes, so it's... So I, yes, so sorry, go, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. So, so you got... Yes, because the famous... Um, the, oh, God, what's it? No, the living room. Mm. <laughs> No, the Alan McKee Club. Yes. Which is called The Living Room, wasn't it? That's the one. Yeah. Yes. And so you were part of that and then got on to Creation Records, the early years with probably people like, I don't know, was it the Orchids and the Jasmine Minx? Basically, bands from Scotland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the TV personalities were one of the main bands. Yes. Yeah. Who, 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 who we had, uh, had a... Um, um, I mean, I, I always used to get on super well. I still don't really see him anymore, but I, I, obviously for obvious reasons. But I, I used to get on very well with Dan Tracy. I used to like him, but we used to he used to hate me, and I used to he, he hated me. He, I just found him slightly irritating sometimes. I I took the piss out of him in the creation board, which he never forgave me for. But what they really never forgave us for is we played with them, and the keyboard player came up to us and said to the Andy, our guitarist, "Oh, our, our gear has been impounded at customs in Italy." When I think about it, it's a big fat lie anyway. But maybe it wasn't. Who knows? But it's uh, can we borrow your gear? <laughs> and like, yeah, absolutely, you can. The only thing is, we we've actually paid for a van to get it there, which is the truth. So we're going to need a contribution. <laughs> and I think they just thought we would be so completely made up about our chance to lend the TV personalities our gear. They they were completely taken aback. They were like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like, it's like, no, no, you're going to have to pay. If you want to borrow it, that's fine. But, you know, we pay for it. You know, yes. You'll get anyway. So. so, look, so as the band, because obviously your songwriting by this period, and also you could tell your girlfriend that you can sing, which she must have been, you must have been really chuffed, actually, that the, the members of the band said, no, you can be the singer after being told you can't sing. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I kind of, yeah. I mean, she, she, was, she was very kind about it. She wasn't horrible. I mean, I, I, for some reason, I just didn't, I don't know. I, I, mean, it was, I, mean, I blame punk rock, but also I thank you to punk rock because the idea of being able to sing was, was irrelevant to me. I didn't really care. Yes. Because I was like, you don't have to sing. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, well, fuck it. I, don't, I can't sing. I don't care. You know, and I mean, the thing, of course, with punk rock is there's a lot of, you know, there was so much spin with punk rock. You know, we oppose all rock and roll, sang Subway Sect and played the most amazing rock and roll. And so did the Pistols and so did the Clash. And they were incredibly well-schooled in British rock. You know, um, they hardly, you know, they they, 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 they they talked it, but they didn't really reinvent anything. Do you know what I mean? 
well, they did. They reinvented brilliant rock and roll. But it, what I'm saying is, you know, what I mean, it was quite conventional music. Ultimately. Oh yeah, God. I mean, you know, punk. I mean, you know, there's no difference between a lot of punk and listen to the Monkees. I mean, it's just like it's very, you know, standard pop, pop punk, uh, pop rock, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, but the attitude, the but the but the thing is, the the, the the rhetoric was was like you know, destroy everything. Which of course, people like Mark Smith did pay attention to, and it worked brilliantly. And so did the Slits, and so did the Raincoats, and so did you know, not destroy everything, but they they brought it further. But yeah, so I so actually, I wasn't. I was always from the Lou Reed, Bob Dylan school of singing. I've never, you know, I mean, I've learned to sing better in, recently in the last few years. I mean, I think I could sing by the time Paradise came out as well. Yes. The weather problems. But I, I, it was never, I was never, uh, I never thought of myself, I thought of myself as, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what I credited myself as, but it was, I would think voice is what feels a much better credit than, than singing. Singing. You know? So look, then you did... To, to just round off the law, you toured this, this famous tour with the Colourfield, mm. um, which obviously at the time were quite huge because of, you know, the members of the band. But then you did one of those things that I remember watching a documentary about the Eagles, uh, where they sort of had, had a bit of a, the, the end, one of the many times when the band finished was when they had a fight and one of the guitars had to run off stage and quickly just leg it because he was going to get beaten up by the rest of the band. So did you also managed to split up live on stage yeah i mean we were kind of we 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 kind of split up anyway but i i thought i was going to be carrying it was a complicated business i mean it involved me basically it was it what it is it's all about it's about people especially um english men being unable to share any of their feelings i don't think we had a single cross word until that night at the hammersmith palais and then on stage it all blew up basically um that's what happened i mean we, we'd already pretty much decided to split up before but there was no there was no and it kind of but it became i kind of ended up doing i, I sort of improvised a whole load of words at the end and then it kind of like it, it, it was horrible really when i think about it but it was like it was but it was quite dramatic because it was kind of it was it was articulated in an artistic manner shall we say like it kind of went into a great big long sort of monologue about a monologue in the style of, um, you know, in the style of Tom Verlaine when he did that talky stuff or Patty Smith or something. And then it kind of climaxed and I walked off up the spiral staircase and they played for some more time and then it finished. So that was the end of that. But it wasn't a fight. I, I thought I was going to get punched when I got back. <laughs> I never saw them. I just, I just, me and my girlfriend just went home. Right. And, and, and as somebody who's just a fan, I mean, when a band finishes like that, is there any sort of like, Anything that you have to do, like the admin or equipment or... Because, you you know, it's not just like, oh, we've just fallen out with some friends and we're never going to invite them around for dinner again. I mean, having been in the band, there must have been some sort of... God, we have got a few, you know, like having a pet dog and you split up from your girlfriend. You think, Who's having the dog? Well, I mean, I didn't... I, I, wasn't using, I wasn't using my amp at the show, so I just took my guitar. So there was no... I mean, no. There was no... I mean, you know what? There was no admin at all. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's it. It was just that was it. Wow, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, we we didn't we didn't speak for a very long time. Yes, God. But then, obviously, with a lot of people, they would say, "That's it. We're not doing music game." You went straight in. Did you have an idea that you were going to go straight into another band at that stage? Yeah, I did want. I wanted to. I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I really. I'm, you know, I, I think it would have been good if I could have found a way to negotiate our differences. But I was 
funny combination of being, you know, very much the typical English male who never expresses any feelings, but then underneath it all is a Vesuvial and um, manic and, in, and half mad. Um, so, yeah, I just I was like, no, this is, I want to do it like this, you know. So I was very driven to do something else. Yes. And then with, with the Weather Prophets, now, is this right with you all back on creation? And Anna McGee, did he play bass? I, there was he played bass on one track, right? He just played bass. He's a really McGee's a brilliant musician. I mean, he's an amazing musician, right? But then, obviously, that wasn't the band. But then, you you had really by then you probably hadn't done ten thousand hours, but you'd obviously started to create and craft the beautiful pop song, which was also the beautiful indie pop song as well. So, so did things? Did you also? see a shift in your own work you know thinking actually I'm beginning to get quite good at this um well you never you never you never think you're good you were you, you every every I'm sure everybody does it you're a combination of thinking you're marvelous and thinking you're a piece of shit you know that's, that's the way that's the way it is you know I think you just make stuff you know and you make it as best as you can um no I mean I never thought I was any good but on some level I was quite pleased with what I'd made I guess um, cause I, I try to just, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you love what you love and I loved really, you know, I love certain records, you know, I, you know, I, I would have loved to, you know, I love Creedence Clearwater Revival and I would have loved to do, you know, I would love to be able to do what they did in terms of songwriting or I love, I don't know what, do you know, do you know what I mean? Yes. So look, your first single, you know, is the classic. Can you remember how that came about? How it came about? Yeah, almost prayed. Did you know? Because often, often when I've mentioned you know a song that is quite famous to people yeah. in you know in this world, um, they go, "God, yeah, this is something that you know just happened in you know like half an hour." And you think, "Wow, that's amazing," you know. But you know that that half an hour, you know, isn't just half an hour. That would have been, you know, certain things lined up like the planets in a cosmic way. But, you know, I just wondered if you, you know, what the process of writing Almost Prayed was. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was, yeah, I mean, like you said, that, I mean, I, I don't, I, the main thing about it that I remember was when I wrote it originally, it was very slow. And it was kind of like, I wanted something that had the vibe of um, a song called Lonely Financial Zone, if you know that track. No. By Jonathan Richmond, it's a great track. And it's, I wanted something that was kind of like, Sort of, sort of slightly kind of, and I love the Carter family as well. Do you know the Carter family? Yes. I love the Carter family. So I wanted to do something that was kind of a bit religious. You know, not a bit religious, but I mean, I just, I don't know, I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a religious, and I, I'm a yeah, massive fan of the Carter family. So that, and the, it was very slow. That's why I remember it. It was like, it was, it was like a hymn. That's what it was. And then I sped it up. And then it worked better. Um, and the riff basically came up from me not really being able to play Roadrunner properly. <laughs> it's, it's, now I think I could do it, but it's like it's, it goes on quite a long time before it changes. It's over, it's over like four bars, I guess. I, I don't really know what bars are, but it's, it's over like, you know, 16 beats yes. and four beats and almost prayed, the little turnaround and almost prayed is over four beats or eight beats. It's, it's shorter. So all of us phrases go da 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 da. That's that's almost played. Whereas Roadrunner goes da 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 da. I think that's right. Yes, 
But right. then, obviously, I mean, and, and, you know, I have to confess, when John Peel played it, I went out and bought the single, which I think was a, one of those, like, a double CD pack. I'll have to find mine now, actually. Double vinyl, yeah, double vinyl, not double CD, double vinyl. That's right. It was a lovely thing to do. I mean, we, we also did a thing which I'm really very thankful to, to McGee and, and I mean, both of us, but we, we spent quite a lot of money recording it at, um, at a studio, the song. And it was all right. It was neat. I mean, it's, it's, it kind of actually mirrors that. I don't know if you've seen the McGee, the film, the um, the Oasis film. Yes, which I love. I mean, I love Oasis. I think they're brilliant. But um, but it, you know, the film where he where he basically that great bit where Noel's playing in the stuff and and Noel's like, well, we'll, we'll make something more sort of raw on the next record. And McGee's like, you won't be making the next record if you release this, which is brilliant. I don't know if you remember that. They played them the very well varnished versions of the songs of Definitely Maybe and 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 they just were they were nice, but they were they weren't they didn't have any edge to them. Right. And we recorded almost prayed, and it was a very neat version. I remember it was over I mean we recorded it before Christmas and I remember playing it at Christmas, even playing it in my flat and managing to get the neighbours banging on the wall because I was just playing it loud enough to try and excite myself into thinking, This is amazing, this is brilliant, it sounds so good. Um and then sort of by the end of Christmas I was like, Do you know what? I don't think this is very good. I think this is a bit overproduced, not overproduced, just a bit, a bit, bit um, not vibey enough. You know, it just didn't have the groove to it because it was very, you know, that thing where you, when you're a band who used to playing together and then you record something all separately and very neat, it doesn't quite have the spirit. Yes. And I remember very clearly being on a, in a phone box on um, Crouch End Hill and talking to Alan and going, I don't like it. And it's like at the time it was a quite a lot of money for a lot of money for creation in four figures. I mean, not that many, not that much over a thousand pounds, but it was like quite a lot of money for them to pay for a recording. And he was like, "What do you think?" And I was like, "I don't think we should. I think we should uh, we should release the BBC session version of it." Um, and he was like, "Okay," which is really cool. But he was he was just like, "You know what? You're right. I agree with you." And so we bought the BBC, the BBC version. Was that a John Peel session? I think so, but it might have been a Janice Long session as well. Yes. Well, it's kind of interesting because the first Smiths album, I was thinking, God, just, you couldn't really think, wow, that's going to be an amazing band. But then Hatful of Hollow was like, okay, that's brilliant. That's just genius. But that was, you know, the John Peel, Kid Jensen sessions were probably produced by Dale Griffiths. But um, yes, it's surprising how, how they those sessions do sound so much better. We never got on with Dale Griffiths at all. <laughs> <laughs> we made an arrangement where he would go outside while we were recording and we'd do it because we really, we really, we were so excited by who he was. We were like, Muffin, it's amazing. God, we didn't get on. He was, he was, he was like, all right, okay, I'll just, I'll just go for a cup of tea and you, you know, I'll do it with you. Can do it with the engineer. It's very funny. So, but, <laughs> no, so that version was like the live version, which was great and it had a much nicer feel. So, so that was the one we released you, yeah, and that that was the one that obviously you liked, and other people liked, and it had a nice feel to it. Um, yeah. Yes, and then came the album Mayflower. Did yeah. you um, having a sort of a producer Lenny Kay must yeah. have must have felt like you had suddenly stepped into some Andy Warhol esque cool, you know, Velvet Underground, you know, Lou Reed world, thinking, my God, we made that link. We are you know, channeling the spirit of, of sort of, you know, that famous club, CBGB's. Yeah, I mean, all, all of that, yeah. But, but I mean, that's, but the thing about things like that is that isn't very helpful, actually. I mean, Lenny was a lovely, lovely producer, lovely man. I mean, I've still, still so 
marginally in contact with him. We still email each other occasionally and keep trying to meet up. But obviously, he's quite busy when he comes to England, so it's just quite hard to, um, you know, fit that in between festival appearances. But you know, he's lovely. Um, yeah, it was. I think one of the things that people like him actually he had to do as a producer was kind of balance Warner Brothers' expectations with, you know, maybe. You know other people's expectations. You know, I mean, it sounds 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 good in, on on in, with hindsight. I mean, I probably would have liked it to be a bit rougher. And do you know what? He probably would have liked it to be a bit rougher. But yes. you, you, we were entering the belly of the beast. You know, we 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 had to make something which was more varnished. And I think maybe there was an there was an edge to the weather profits, which was more about a sort of a, you know. A, I don't know. It was just a bit more vibey, for want of a better word, you know. And, and I think we would have been probably better off doing it quicker and more sort of, um, you know, more more messy. Yes. But, but now listening back to it, because I hadn't listened to it for years, and I can't remember somebody played it. Or you no, know, it's on Spotify, isn't it? That's what's weird about it, because because it's Warner Brothers. There was never any chance to re-release it because it belongs to them. It was on Spotify, so I listened to it, and it's like, oh, okay, this is it's better than I remembered it. Yeah, but then you you had a final single, Always the Light, and then the band split up. So did you, by then, have a feeling this is this is actually... Because that was only in 88, so the band yeah. had been... We did, no, no, we did, no. We, 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 the story, we had two singles, and we did another album on creation. What, what happened is we, we did our deal with Warners, and then, and then our option came up, and we wrote them a letter saying um we're only going we only want to carry on if if i could produce the record <laughs> and this is what we want we set our terms and they dropped us which was the plan basically we wanted to be dropped <laughs> so they dropped us and we were very very happy and we went to the pub up next to creation and celebrated we were like brilliant we're free we don't have to because it once because the thing with warner brothers to be fair to them, they, they let us do whatever we wanted. We wanted Lenny Kay to produce it. They were like, you do this. But the next album clearly would have been, we now want pictures of you looking, you know, pictures of you with the sunset setting between your legs and, you know, probably some sort of cheap-ass version of the Joshua Tree is what they would have wanted out of us, undoubtedly. Yes. Um, you know, fair, I mean, I'm not I'm really, I mean, I know, it, 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 they're like, we've spent a shitload of money on you people. You have not made us enough money back. Now we decide. And you know what? Fair enough. But we were like, we'd much rather that didn't happen because it would be humiliating and it's not what we feel comfortable doing. So we got ourselves dropped, which was great. So then we're back on creation, back on the doll, back on the <laughs> and But then we made another album on creation, which was, which was, you know, which was what we wanted. And we did a single Hollow Heart as well, and Always Delight, and that was, and then, but by that time, we'd kind of lost the momentum of the band, and we were also moving in different directions, and it was, we, 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 were, we, were, we were functioning really well as a band, but I think you, you kind of have a moment where you reach people, and, and we'd kind of like, we'd kind of, we'd, we'd kind of, we're out of step. You know, if we'd stayed on creation and done the first album on creation, that would have been fine but the fact we didn't it's almost like there's no going back after that yes and the other thing that sort of hit a lot of bands that i've interviewed is that around that time 87 to 88 you know the bands who'd been going for a while were getting tired and the other thing they'd realized they hadn't made much money and the musical landscape was changing quite drastically and it was the kind of interest you know introduction of that you know i suppose ecstasy and the rave scene so a few bands managed to move over like the soup dragons and 
Primal Scream and um, yes, the Happy Mondays and the other bands, I suppose all those bands like the June Brides and the Wolfhounds were thinking, oh Christ, we've had it, you know, and, and sort of just went to the wayside. So were you aware of that kind of shift that suddenly the music papers and people wanted that kind of epic kind of ecstasy fueled, you know, ravey song? No, and I was completely aware of that world. I mean, uh, completely, um, as everybody in creation was. You know, it was, it was, it was how that changed. Though, quite, it was just for me. It didn't really feel right for us to do that musically. I mean, we, you know, we 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 did try some more electronic stuff just towards the end, but it wasn't really. It just didn't really feel. It felt a bit bogus for us to be doing that, you know. And it just didn't. It didn't. Even though I liked the music, I didn't have a problem with the house music at all. But it was the problem is it didn't feel like there was a way that we could have done that without being looking like we were jumping on a bandwagon. Didn't yes. really. We'd already felt like we'd established our sound, and to do something <clears throat> not like that wasn't really would would have just felt a bit bogus. Yes, and when and when. With, not that I have a problem with, you know, Suit Dragons doing it. I don't have a problem with people doing that stuff. I just don't. It didn't feel right for us. You know, I didn't have a problem with the problems doing it, but it wasn't right for us. Um, you know, and then, <clears throat> I mean, and yeah, so, so that, does that make sense? That yes, felt that does make sense. And did you, again, on Mark Two, your second band, did you have a moment where, unlike on the first one, that you sat down and said, shall we just give it, shall we call it quits now? Yeah, 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 completely. I mean, we were very good friends, all of us. We just decided, yeah, I mean, I, just, I would, I mean, <clears throat> I was more the, um, the sort of, the, the, I was more in charge of the weather properties. It was less of, less of a democracy. It, wasn't, it, sounds like a, it wasn't a fascist dictatorship. It was a benign um, leadership. You know, everybody had a voice, but it was like, in the end, I was the casting vote. I kind of didn't, I was like, this is my thing. This is, this is my, my largely, my, it's, it's all of our vision. It's a collective, but it was a, there was a hierarchy of sorts. Yes, I was a singer songwriter, blah blah blah, um, and so it seemed a logical step. And so the, the first solo album I made was that album Submarine that I'm talking about, which did have sequences throughout it and, and was more electronic, um, but it wasn't dance music. That's the thing. It was more like Frasier Chorus or something like that, a band that I loved at the time, and, and it was more like um, electronic to some degree, not a band I particularly loved. But you, do you know what I mean? It was more. It took account of like modern modern music. Yes, and obviously that game was on creation. So for that period when, and obviously the music world had sort of gone Seattle crazy before the Britpop period, were you were you able to sort of get your own sort of little niche in the music industry at that point? Or were you feeling a bit like, blimey, what's happening? Not really would be the right answer to that. <laughs> I mean, no, the thing is, what, what happened was a submarine came out and creation were 100% behind it. And it didn't it did all right in England. People liked it, but not a lot. Um, but people loved it in France, um, which is where we kind of come to paradise in a sense, because that's what was on a French label. So, in the sense of how did I cope with the world going mad on grunge or whatever, was that I, I ended up with a career in Europe rather than in England. Right. So that's that's how I dealt with it. But you know, and I, you know, so that that's kind of where it was. I mean, I do remember when we delivered Paradise, somebody gently suggesting maybe you could turn the guitars up and make them a bit more distorted. <laughs> Which, fair enough, you know, and I was like, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, because going to par with Paradise, there is, there is elements of that kind of old country vibe at times, isn't there? So were, yeah. you, were you starting to sort of 
become a little bit more aware of, you know, I don't know, there was bands like Uncle Tupelo and Wilco. I mean, um, were you were you sort of becoming more interested in sort of listening to country music at that stage? Well, like I said, I mean, you know, Almost Probe was massively influenced by the Carter family. I've always been, you know, it's a bit like it's like there's always been a dance element to our music since the indie band. <laughs> there was all, I mean, I was listening to Hank Williams from like 1980 onwards. I was always been a massive country fan. Yes, you and know? so so obviously that that was coming out in your solo work quite a bit more, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it, I mean, the Weather Prophets were hardly country, but there was far more country elements in the Weather Prophets. I mean, a lot of indie, indie quote unquote stuff, you know, they were. It was quite a very limited palette in a sense. I mean, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's not, but it's like you know, it goes all the way from the birds to the small faces or something. I don't know what. Do you know what I mean? If you drew the family tree, whereas the Weather Prophets already had influences which were wider than than um, than, than sort of classic pop, if you like. Yes. Well, I suppose that's one of the interesting things with some of those bands from that period. And that's, you know, like you couldn't work out what the influences particularly or, you know, with some bands you think, oh, God, yes, you will listen to that album and you've regurgitated it with, the say, the Smiths. I mean, it's like, God, where did Johnny Marr get some of those ideas from? You know, it was kind of, I suppose it was kind of tricky. There wasn't anything obvious. You wouldn't think, oh, yeah, that's the Beatles or that's ELO. It was like Johnny Marr's guitar was just quite stunning, really. And, and kind of interesting and and then you know years later you know he talks about Pentangle and Rory Gallagher and think oh okay then that's kind of you know he's got quite depth to his musical world. Well it's like um, it's like uh, <clears throat> I mean one of my favourite guitarists is uh, Keith Levine from Public Image Limited yes you know and he was um, Steve Howe's guitar roadie. <laughs> right the great yes guitarist. Well, Huh? The Yes guitarist. He was the world's biggest Yes fan. He became a kind of an, an ad hoc Steve Howe acolyte guitar roadie. And when you when you listen to Swan Lake, you know the Public Image track, what's called Death Disco. I mean, it's no accident because Yes played Swan Lake. It's like, oh, uh, you know, he's just simply just used one of the Yes tunes and bunged it on a Public Image track, called it Death Disco. I mean, yeah, he was a massive Yes fan, which yeah. is why. He so a massive Steve Howe fan. He was a he was a complete obsessive about yes. Wow, I know. It makes sense why his guitar playing so remarkably sophisticated melodically and on all those pill records because he's like he's not yeah like he's not just coming from clearly he's not just coming from Steve Jones, brilliant as he is, but Steve Jones is you know the school of rock, isn't he? Whereas um, Keith Levine is something else entirely. But yeah, it comes from yes mostly. Yes. So after you did your your those those. Those albums in the early '90s, which was kind of like bubbling under with Britpop, then but you then disappear from the music scene for a bit. So did you did you sort of feel when when you were sort of vaguely watching Top of the Pops, thinking, oh God, perhaps I should have stayed with it. I could have, or were you just knackered at that stage? No, I wasn't. I mean, I was. I think the main thing was. I think one thing is when you're even if you're doing something which fits, I mean, something doesn't fit, but it's still different in principle. I mean, you know, if you listen to Paradise, so I'm very proud of it. I think it's a good piece of work, um, but it's not. You know, there's an attitude that comes with Blur and all those people who, you know, I mean, I was living in. I was my girlfriend lived in Cal. I spent half my time in Camden at that time, so I was in the good mixer. I knew all the people, so I knew that world plenty well. Um, I guess I mean on a social level to some degree I was in that world, but it, it wasn't it, it would have been again a bit daft if I'd started to, you know, wear DMs and pretend that I was a sort of a 
I don't know, middle-class football hooligan or something like that. You know, it just would have been bogus. It would have been daft, you know, because it just it's not me. Yes. You know, so it's the same thing. I mean, yes, I was broadly doing guitar music, and yes, I sing in an English accent, and yes, it's not a million miles away, but the fact that we'd had our moment in the sun five years previously, that's a long time in show business. You know, it's like five years is that a difference. It made us a different generation, even though sonically we maybe weren't that different. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Grown up, so it didn't. So that's why it wasn't. That wasn't the thing. And then, then what I got to at the end of the my sort of run of French albums in like I guess eight, eight, ninety three, ninety four. I did that. We've got other stories, which I'm also very proud of. And um, I was like, no, I want to stop now, and I want to do something that basically my main my main aesthetic thought was I want to do something that acknowledges how much I like bands like Can and how much I like, I'd also really got massively into drum and bass. <laughs> and again, I'm not going to have to make a drum and bass record, but I, I, got, I was starting to go into a lot of clubs in, in the early 90s, uh, like Metalheads and Speed and all those places. Um, that kind of was my acid house, if you like, my 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 dance thing. But it, Because I, I felt like, I mean, I, I like drum and bass more than I liked house music off the, off the bat because it was funkier. Yes. And this, um, and this and this was the release you had on Static Caravan. Yeah, so then I started on Static Caravan. And, yeah, I mean, and then I re- then, you know, the band Wisdom of Harry and we did stuff and we ended up, yeah, I did an album on my own label. Um, I did a record on on, on on my own label called, under a pseudonym, Louis Chavez, which was distributed and paid for by Rough Trade, which was interesting. Um, and that did really well. That sold out of its thousand copies you can still find on discog somewhere but it was like a it was a dreaded horrible phrase but it was in the chill out you know it was, it was down tempo music that's what it was not chill out you know it was down tempo so that did well that was like 1996 um and then i started doing the wisdom of harry stuff i don't know how familiar or and ellis island sound I don't know how familiar you are with those. Bands. No, I'm, I'm, I have to say this is, this is the you know this is completely off. So it's interesting because because you obviously just always had that passion to keep creating, almost like David Bowie. You know you, you know you. you <laughs> <laughs> there was always there was always you know a, a kind of another musical project. So during all that time, so you were you able to sort of keep yourself alive as in you know paying you know rent food you know that world as well as making music because it's often one of the more tricky aspects of being a musician well it was you know, back on the rock and roll as they say it was back on the dole basically back on the dole and then i started i say started doing the wisdom of harry with stuff on static camera and a whole range of those labels like liquefaction empire and then i can't remember lots of different labels we did stuff on. we did stuff on all on all city which is part of thrill jockey we sent our stuff off to Thr- thrill jockey almost started putting Ellis on that it ended up being all city which is a subsidiary of thrill jockey you know thrill jockey yeah definitely no, we basically reintroduced ourselves into that world and it was really flattering because it's like wow and i you know i remember there was like when 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 the first wisdom of harry album came out which i which was a compilation of all the seven inches that we'd done across loads of different labels and you know for example got single of the week in, in the nme which is great for a track album a seven inch on a japanese label and, and I don't, they had no clue that i was pete astor had been in the weather profits um so it's really flattering to to have, to have built it back up again and most almost everyone not knowing who i was yes absolutely that is very good and we did that, and you know, I remember getting a big, you know, getting two pages in the Independent, like two full pages in the Independent about my stuff, and it was, you know, it was lovely. It was like, wow, back, did that. Then I got a job at Beggar's Banquet, um, you know, the, rec- the record label. Yeah. 
uh, in uh, in the publishing department, which is brilliant. Doing A and R for them, which is a brilliant job. Um, so I thought, oh shit, I've got a job. I've got a proper job. I've never had a proper job before. Yes, true. Fact, I'd always just managed to blag my way through by being poor, basically, um, which is fine. Um, well, poor and not poor. Obviously, music maybe not poor in certain times, but that's poor. Sorry, um, but uh, but. Yeah, and then I got a job at Beggars, did that for a couple of years, two or three years. And then the Wisdom of Harry started to build up, and then the Wisdom of Harry ended up signing to Matador. Yes, which is one of those very hip labels. Yeah, so we signed to Matador, and, and then the Ellis Island Sound signed to Heavenly. So it was like bingo. By 1999, I'd now signed two record deals with two separate bands, both of which I was in. <laughs> Wisdom of Harry was very much my thing. A lot of the tracks on Wisdom of Harry I've made them entirely on my own with samples and loops and stuff like that and Ellis Island Sound was a collaboration with David Shepherd. you might know this musician well, lots lots of people journalist for Mojo does a new band called Snow Palms they're doing very well anyway so, so, so that so we so I ended up so then I had I ended up leaving Beggars because I was like I've got a job I've got a job as a musician again and I got publishing deals and I started to be able to live off being a musician again fantastic all over again. I mean, it stopped me being a grown-up and having a proper job. Yes. I would have otherwise, I would have probably had a proper job in a record company. But um, anyway. But then, for this decade, just just to with this yeah. is kind of, you then sort of get a job as a lecturer, which yeah. is pretty impressive, teaching, you know, music, which you must yeah. be really, you know, you wrote, a, you know, published a book on Richard Hale, which it must must be chuffed because that was part of that thirty uh, third and third series, and then and then sort of continue to release. We have released three albums this decade, which is again no no mean you know which is you know impressive because because you know I mean there's another person called Amelia Amelia Fletcher who's who's again you know she's managed to sort of balance her sort of day job working at the UEA you know in teaching economics with still being a musician. So do you? You know, are there a few of you out there now that think, right, this is quite good, but I know, I know how I need to balance, you know, work during the term time with my students and then doing some music elsewhere just to keep everything happy. Oh yeah, I mean, I know Amelia well. Do you know what I mean? We're we're actually doing shows together. Actually, with me because we share a, we share a band basically. Like Ian, I've just made a new record of cover versions. Oh, excellent. I'm with Andy, uh, um, yeah, like Andy on bass and Ian on, on drums and various. And Dave Tattersall, you know Dave Tattersall? No. Pictures, you know the wave pictures? No, God. God. Wow. Down the wave pictures. Amazing. But anyway, so, yeah, so just um, lots of different people playing on that. Um, but, yeah, so we share, so I know Amelia. Well, yes, yeah, so no, it's exactly that. I mean, it's not, I mean, I, I've got, I've got a, um, this is so boring. I've got a 0.7 at Westminster. It's a brilliant job. I love it. And a 0.7 in the world of academia, I think you might have, if you know that well, 0.7 is 0.7 of a full-time job, basically. Yes. So I've, I've got a full-time job. I've only got 0.7 of it, which is perfect because it means I don't have to go in every day. Basically, you've got three and a half days, haven't you? Yes, exactly. So it's a, it's a lovely thing. It's like good maths. Yeah, I, I've never quite been able to work that out. But yeah, exactly. So, so, it's a, so it allows me to be able to still make music. Obviously, my priority is... Well, in my soul, my priority is both. I mean, I would, I would, I'm so glad I, I get to lecture and teach. I mean, teach, I tend to think of more than lecture. I'm always a bit dubious about lecturing, but I do lecture. Sometimes that implies there's no teaching going on. There's just talking. Um, but I love my job. I think it's amazing. I, I love the chance to be able to, you know, hopefully help people and help 
people facilitate people's learning and give you know and I get loads of ideas off students and I get inspired by them maybe they get inspired by me I don't know but I mean it's just it's a really nice thing to be able to do I feel incredibly lucky that I I get to do that yes well absolutely and I'm you know it's it's um yeah, I mean, it must must be perfect. And also, I mean, the one thing that, you know, I did notice is that you do occasionally... I mean, it's interesting how many bands from that period are still sort of, you know, turning up in different venues around the place from, you know, like the Brilliant Corners to Amelia to yourself. So do you, I mean, must occasionally bump into each other. Do you swap stories and go, God, how was it for you? No, no. <laughs> No, we don't. It's interesting. I mean, I've, you know, I've, yeah, me, and, me and Amelia and uh, you know, Andy and everyone, we were stuck on the, uh, the, the alluding the train just outside Euston, where I lived for about uh, for about four and a half hours in that. You know, the, I don't know what was it? People fainting and all this stuff. And so we were all on the train together, bored shitless, <laughs> trying to go up to Manchester and failing because we we got five hundred yards outside Euston and the train was stuck. You know, in the heat wave. Yes, you know, I yeah. remember that well. Yes. We were the people on that train. <laughs> eventually we're like you know blah 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 and so it was you know all that stuff you know no you don't really I mean I, I tend to I tend to be quite wary I mean not the wary I just I mean it's a balance with the past I mean I'm much more interested in tomorrow than I am in yesterday that's really cheesy isn't it but it's true it's like I've um, you know I like and I'm, more, I'm most interested in now actually is what I'm most interested in if I go a bit zen for a second um, you know it's, it's about now really and I you know, and it, it's, it's lovely that people give a shit about stuff that I've done. It's amazing, um, but that's not another bumper sticker. That doesn't pay my spiritual rent. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but, but, occasion, but occasionally I see photographs of sort of like, oh yes, the original band have just had a bit of a kind of re, not a re- reunion, but you know, the there's a picture of you in the loft recently, wasn't there? It's lovely. It's Andy's 60th birthday, so we all went down to the Isle of Wight, where he where he now lives. Mostly, he still lives in London some of the time, but in the Isle of Wight, and it was just great. It's a lovely time. Yes, and it's a nice thing. Yes, lovely to be able to catch up and play, and you know, and you know, and yeah, exactly. But you, you, there's that lovely joining up. You know, I don't know. Bill's got a terribly high power job, but he still just wouldn't miss it for anything. The chance to play with us. You know? Yes, and last year you brought just lastly last year you brought an album out, one for the ghost. I yeah. mean, the process now of bringing out a record. How does how does that sort of compare to? You know, this sort of 80s when, you know, a John Peel play mentioned in the NME. Now things must be quite different. I just wonder what the process is like and, and how, how it feels, you know, when you compare the two experiences. Because not everyone can say, oh, yes, I did an album three decades ago and now I'm doing one in this decade. I mean, for me, weirdly, well, after Fortuna Pop finished, because, you know, Sean just stopped doing Fortuna Pop, um, I don't you know, you know, Fortuna Pop that Spilt Milk was on. Yes. I was on that. So I did that. And then I thought, oh, what am I going to do now? Um, and I emailed to Peter, a German label I'm on now, and said, do you want to put my stuff out? And they said, yes. Um, that was it. That was my, that was my, that was the one label I could think of that might be interested in putting my stuff out. And they were really excited. They were really keen. I just emailed them and said, might you be interested possibly in putting my stuff out? And they said, yes, we'd love to. And, and they pay me, you know, they, they, we, they give advances. I make records, make studios, and, and then they put them out and I do promotional. So the answer is weirdly, 
surprisingly similar. Not like being on Warner Brothers, but it's like a mini version. It's still they do it's appear to do what a record company does. The, the German music industry is a lot healthier than the English one. People still buy things more in Germany than they do in England. Weirdly, but they do. Yes. Well, I, I'm speaking to various bands who are still trying to be, you know, functional. You know, touring Europe and the German market always seems to be like, we have to do that because that will keep us going for another year. Whereas if we don't, we are um, that's going to be the end of us. Yeah, I mean, that, God, that's a very negative way to see the pleasure of touring. That sounds miserable. <laughs> well, no, well I, I spoke to, you know, was Fish, you know, from Meridian, and also, obviously, his solo stuff, and also the guy from The Godfather, and it was like, my God, you know, we've got to do, we have to hit Europe, and we have to do, you know, like 28 gigs in 30 days, otherwise, you know, we're not going to be able to function that well. You know, financially, things aren't going to sort of keep the band going. See, what's lovely for me is I, I make money out of music, but that's not how I make my living. I make my living as a being a, a university lecturer. So the beauty of that is, is that I don't ever have to go, oh, you know, me, me, and the, me and the catenary wires are doing a tour, probably in the new year in Germany. Oh, dear, I have to do this. I'm just like, if I don't want to do it, I don't do it. Yes. I want to do it. So for me, that flips it on its head, which I really love, because I would not in any way... I, w- I would not want to have to play a gig where I'm just going through, you know, I'm not, not that people go through emotions, but that I have to play shows. I, I play shows because I want to. Yes. And I, a- and I was going to say, I know that you, you say you don't look, at, you look too much at the past, but at the same time, you must have been aware that, you know, I've got another theory, which is 30 years passes and then sort of people get kind of excited and look at stuff that they might throw away and think, oh, my God, that's heritage. We must put it in the museum. So there's been a lot of books, but there's also been that have come out. And there's also been a few films. You know, there was The Wedding Present, The Chills, The Go-Betweens, The Slits, L7. Have you, you know, have you sort of looked at your own sort of career and, and that kind of world and thought, God, it would be nice to do a little film about what we've done? It's the creation of film, isn't there? And there's, you know, no, I mean, I mean, somebody, a couple of people have asked me to write something about the time, like book stuff about the time. Yes. I, I just, I mean... I don't think, really don't think people really need to hear that. I mean, it's just like, and I've got no interest in doing it. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like it's not, I mean, some people have written some great books about their time as musicians in the past, but I'm not, yeah, that's not something that I particularly want to do. Yes. It's a balance. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm perfectly happy and flattered that people are interested in my past. And if I play a show, I'll play old songs and I'll play new songs. It's a balance, you know. It's not like I'm I'm not disavowing the past, but to me, it's quite important. I I don't really don't spend a lot of time being in the past, you know. I don't really think, you know, I'm I'm, you know, it's like John Peel always said, isn't he? He's more interested in the record he hasn't heard yet than the record he has heard. Yes, I mean, I think that's the same. I think being a football, as he was such a football fan, it was always like wanting the next game rather than worrying about the past glory. So I think that is probably true. And just yeah. and just lastly, I mean, what would you? I mean, it's always a bit tricky, but what would you say to your, you know, a younger self? You know, somebody starting out because you've got decades of experience. And you think, God, that that bit of wisdom would have been really handy to have known, but I've only managed to learn it because I've had to live it. So I just wondered what you would say. I don't know to your eighteen-year-old self, or yeah, you know, just how that. Mm, I would say, calm down. <laughs> Calm down. But I mean, that's just that's just part of being 18. I mean, you're an idiot when you're 18. But that's 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 just that's that's the job description, isn't it? Be 18, be a total idiot. I mean, it's just how you're I mean, I behave like an idiot. 
um, yeah, so be be a you know be a bit more reflexive. But I mean, that's just that. I, I also think that's just how life is. I mean, everybody knows that you wish you, you everybody wishes you knew. I wish you know what's the song, isn't it? I wish I knew then what I know now. Oh God, um, yes, that's Bob Dylan, isn't it? No, it's it's uh, Ronnie Lane. Oh. It, it's ooh la la by the faces. Oh yes, amazing. Yeah, that's, that's it. But it's like you know everybody. You know, um, the Bob Dylan one is I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now, which is fantastic. But, yes. But, but, but no, I mean to me, it's like you know you you have this incredible self belief when you're that age, and this incredible sort of almost kamikaze lack of self regard and stupidity. But that's just part of the course with how you are. Like, I wish I'd been a bit wiser, but I, I wouldn't have been me if I'd been wiser. You know, I wouldn't have been who I was. And part of who I was was being, I mean, I remember when that Kavanagh book came out about creation, a brilliant book, and sort of reading it. And my girlfriend at the time was like, we, we were going to, I was going to America actually, doing a Wisdom of Harry promo talk for Matador. And we had the book. And she was like, oh, come on, look, come on, you need to look yourself up in the book. And I'm like, so she made me go through the internet look myself up, which is fair enough. I mean, I was like being too precious about it. And then, of course, I read lots of books. Yeah, I did read it from the beginning to end. And I was just stunned, not just me, at that, all of our ridiculous arrogance and sheer stupid arrogance. I mean, stupidity. But it's kind of quite impressive because we were so, we had no idea about how, I mean, I'm amazed at the, the amount of brass neck I had, <laughs> considering what an idiot I was. And I knew I was an idiot. It was amazing. Some, sometimes when I things came up in that book and I think it was showing things that I said, I'm like, Jesus, I, I, I really seemed so confident. And it's like, I totally wasn't. But that's part of being 25, isn't it? You're an idiot. <laughs> well, I think I think I suppose actually, if you didn't have that, then you wouldn't do that thing. Whereas when you sort of get a bit more, I don't know, it's quite interesting. You mentioned being a lecturer, and I, you know, know quite a few, and mostly there's that kind of existential angst of still feeling like God, we're still faking it. It's like, yeah, but you've been doing it for years now. I'm sure, I'm sure you feel like that at the beginning, but still, I know people who lecture and. You know, and, and they're still feeling a bit like I'm going to get found out one day. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, but... Oh, well, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, but I think I think I think the the the, the, the um, imposter syndrome. I think I think that's in a way a, a, a stamp of authenticity. I think if you don't feel that, you're a dickhead, basically. Because I still feel that, of course. I mean, and I think anybody with half a brain should feel that. But people that don't feel that, and some people have told me that, like. Everybody thinks they've got it. I don't have it. And I'm, like, I'm looking at them thinking, yeah, she, weirdly, you are the person who is a bit of an imposter. I think it's a really good sign. Um, really good sign. Yes. Well, look, Pete, thank you ever so much for this. And um, it's been good. And I'll tell you when I put it out. I know, yes, your, your um, chat, Sean, isn't it? Newsham. And um, yes, but I'll do that very soon because that will come out with the, the album, which... It's going to be brilliant. So I, I guess you're sort of, um, yeah, sort of just getting your archives all sorted. Kind of, yeah. It's yeah, like, it's all in a box and it's a total mess and I've lost half of it. We didn't. This album, I did not have a copy of it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, so, isn't it? Yeah, but we've got one from someone, yeah. Excellent. Well, look, thanks a lot and... Um, and I'll, yes, I'll put this out very soon. But this has been brilliant. Thanks ever so much. Pleasure. Fantastic. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.